You are listening to Hospitality Talks, a podcast about all things hospitality through discussions with industry leaders around the globe. Here are your hosts, Abid Butt and Sam Eric Rutman. Glad to be here again. Uh, it is a wonderful day. And today we are going to be learning about uh, the state of the industry in Asia again. Uh, it's It's been a, a little while since we were in Asia. So uh, throughout uh, the pandemic, though Asia generally kept the infection rates low throughout 2020, unfortunately, arrival of the Delta variant uh, changed the landscape where a lot of the Southeast Asian countries were forced to contend with massive outbreaks. In 2019, the tourism sector contributed more than 390 billion in the regional economies. And it is absolutely no surprise to anybody that many of the nations are keen to open the borders to welcome travelers back to all the wonderful destinations that are available. Almost every day in October, Uh, Countries across Asia have revealed plans to loosen pandemic-induced restrictions on uh, inbound and outbound tourism. India, Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, Fiji, and Australia, only a few of the markets announcing their plans to welcome but mostly vaccinated visitors. Maldives and Sri Lanka were early in opening their borders, But with all this going on and with ever-changing requirements and the somewhat lack of clarity on the local conditions, it will be difficult to gain consumer confidence and restarting tourism might prove to be a bit harder than it was when we were shutting it down. Glad to have you with us on Hospitality Talks. I'm Abbott Bhatt. And I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Sam Eric. Welcome from my side also to Hospitality Talks. Uh, we already have several uh, viewers on our live show, so really warm welcome. And uh, if you write down where you are viewing from, where you are viewing from, we'll obviously say hello to you. But also, if you enjoy the content, you can help us to spread the good gospel of uh, hospitality and tourists to, to everyone else. And by pressing that like button, uh, YouTube will take care of that part for us. And if you really like the show, just press subscribe. That will help us a lot to even get further in our shows. So let me just, uh, with further ado, then uh, let's bring the panel and we can start a discussion. Absolutely. So, Sam, we're very fortunate to have uh, today with us three uh, uh, absolute great professionals in our industry uh, Hiran Kure is a trendsetter and influencer, particularly in Sri Lankan tourism, and contributes a great deal to the tourism industry. Uh, carrying on his, uh, carrying on the legacy of his father, he serves as the chairman of Jetwing Symphony, which is part of Jetwing family of hotels. His leading roles and active involvement in travel organizations like. Uh, Pacific Asia Travel Association, Tourist Hotel Association of Sri Lanka, a United Nations World Tourism Organization, World Committee on Tourism Ethics, Sri Lanka Tourism Promotion Boards, 
these are just some of the organizations that he has volunteers and continues to work with, and his contributions have been invaluable. Thanks for being with us, Hiran. We also have with us today Jesper Palmquist. Uh, his career spans across hospitality, online travel agency, and technology since mid-90s, um, leading effort in distribution, sales and marketing, and, and uh, strategy. Since 2013, he has led SDR in Asia-Pacific region and works with teams across the continent. Though an avid musician, uh, uh, he is really creating music, if I may say so, in bringing the, the, to life historic and future supply and demand data, as well as financial data for the hospitality industry, providing uh, valuable market share analysis for global hotel and investment companies, governments, and academia. Jesper, thanks for being with us. And last but not least, Anurag Bhatnagar is the chief operating officers, uh, chief operating officer at the Leela Palaces Hotels and Resorts. It, he's dedicated to strengthening and elevating the Leela's position as an epitome of true Indian luxury. With a career spanning over 27 years, he has been involved with world-renowned Indian and international hotel brands. He has a passion for operational excellence and an unwavering focus on delivering highly personalized uh, service while effectively aligning brand values with key business initiatives. His understanding of luxury consumer segment is instrumental in leading the brand through the next phase of growth. Jesper, Anurag, and Hiran. Uh, welcome to Hospitality Talks, and thanks for being with us. Thank, Thank you, Avin. Thank you. So, uh, Jesper, if it's okay, lead us out uh, with this discussion, since you've got the 30,000-foot uh, uh, vantage point with the entire market. Tell us a, a little bit about the 2020 performance, a brief overview as to what the ups and downs in the industry particularly in Asia-Pacific continent, has been. Yeah, thanks, uh, Avid. Uh, it's certainly been a, a, an interesting year because of Delta, to, to cut to the chase, right? Uh, you, we know that already last year you couldn't really bundle a big market. Wall Street people sometimes ask, what's the rep part of Asia-Pacific? I'm not sure what to do with that. But now more than ever, you can't really bundle this year. You need to go granular, look at different things. But there's so much variations. But broadly speaking, the Delta just prevented 21 from being what we now hope 22 will be, right? Where we start actually being able to do some kind of budgeting to see at least a bifurcated year instead of uh, four or five times over and, and readjusting things. Uh, I think we were also surprised with the amount of politics, uh, the non-collaboration and the hard decisions that was obviously made uh, around the region that made it so diverse that you have some markets that have been able to perform really well and tourism uh, has been able to grow. I mean, airlift starting to pick up as well and some others have not. So in short, I suppose, big domestic markets, some of them have, have gained demand and there were some surprises in it, right? Uh, 
we all know how it started with leisure and, and local business and that kind of stuff already last year. But we're also seeing weekday business that, that I'm happy to talk about today as well. But if I summarize it when we talk about countries, there were some clear winners. If you asked me a year ago who I think some of the winners, China, obviously, because they are already growing. But the in, Indian comeback, which we can talk more about, has been a, a tremendous uh, success story in the last few months. Indonesia, Maldives, uh, who joined US and UK around that area. And on the flip side, I suppose the uh, letdowns with that Delta, even if Olympics were Japan, we expected more this year, Australia, Thailand, Vietnam, and markets like that, and for sure. So there is a lot of different stories there of it. I guess it I being guess that it's a very diverse geography, and a lot of these nations are very heavily dependent on cross-border travel, with the borders being shut down and all the other things that the countries were grappling with throughout 2021, um, some of these results are, are uh, somewhat expected. Whilst we would have expected markets like Japan or markets like uh, India to have done far better, but Delta variant uh, really created a havoc in many cases. Yes, Brett, there has been lots of changes, uh, e e even in office markets. The business travel segment has is, is changed. Now, you guys being part of CoStar, you have all sorts of data. Are there any correlations that you can um, uh, tell us about, for example, office occupancies versus hotel occupancies? And is there a correlation to be developed? I suppose the, the correlation is really on the uh, where, how early markets are reacting and, and from a recovery standpoint. So we, I do spend a lot of time looking at the, the, the CoStar, the commercial real estate data, where, which they have such abundance of in North America and Europe. And I mean, even before this, when I look at hospitality data, we would do the same and look at some of the trends. And not just that, US and UK, for instance, parts of Europe have recovered through it and are recovering in a different way. Less of the V-shaped, more of the long progressive recovery. And I, the, the latest things that we look at is uh, leasing is the hottest topic uh, in, in the office markets in the big cities. Leasing is certainly uh, extremely high activity, likely to continue in the fourth quarter. People are returning to office, right? They're driven often by, by tech, media, and law firms and things we know around the world, even in Europe now as well. Uh, so that's one thing. And then in terms of sales of commercial real estate, that has certainly picked up uh, a lot in North America. We're also seeing it in uh, Europe, in London, as, as a good indicator. Uh, it's often these days like more safe, big assets rather than those small 50 million pounds and below. So we're, and we, we can use that and see like it's when that interest wakes up, that's an indication of hotel sales picking up as well, right? We in the U.S., the last couple of quarters, there is assets have been sold and bought in the U.S., but it's mostly, you know, the big Vegas sale or it's luxury and big rather than that broad base that we see. But it is a step in the right direction. You have to remember that there is a lot of excess supply in commercial real estate and a lot of new supply coming as well. So that creates a bit of an issue. I think many are opting still for that subleasing, right? The cheaper option. Uh, we're still not sure about the balance of how, how, how many should be in the office. Do we need the distancing? So we're still seeing that being on out, but it's moving in the right direction. Fair enough. I, 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 um, yes, but when you're looking at um, 
trends and all of us in the industry are looking for the green shoots and possibly the silver lining. What statistics should we be gravitating to to, to find out how the, the uh, tourism industry is moving forward and what can we expect? We're already in October. A lot of the hotels at this point are already starting to plan for 2022 what the, for the budget exercise and that sort of stuff. What stats are critical and in, in the true indicative and predictive of what we can expect? Yeah, I mean, you can, is there ever a time when this, have we ever had more data around the world? <laughs> and, and it's been tricky to, uh, for many, I think. I mean, we're, I mean, as a, as a data company, as a tech company, we're, we're clearly happy that more people are, are looking at the data and trying to figure out and asking the right questions. So that's been a step forward. One of those things that started progressing before the pandemic, but has been accelerated. So we're, we're delighted that, that that's happening, that we, we know that the benchmarking, the classic benchmark we provide is still very relevant. We've asked so many questions throughout this. So the, the key metrics that people use for feasibility studies or anything, still very, very uh, valid. But we know that we had to accelerate things uh, in point of demand. And one of the examples is business on the books, right? So forward star. So occupancy on the books is something we were planning and doing, but we had to accelerate it, fast track it out so that markets like the Maldives and London or Singapore can look and see how am I pacing on the books in, in uh, specific comp sets. And it's also um, the monthly PL would be another one because we've always done PL and other companies as well on an annual basis. But doing that monthly now, to see more frequent flow through analysis. Uh, I think the maturity of reading it has increased in the last couple of years. So combining those data points, and obviously the pressure is on us as the supplier to make sure that that is accessible simply and, and, and given in, a, in an environment where you can easily digest it and, and consume it and, and make good business decisions uh, based on that. So that's, I think that's kind of the stepping stones that are happening. Fair enough. Uh, Jesper, uh, 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 we'll hear from two of the uh, operators that are joining the panel in a bit. Uh, hotel companies and hotels all, all around the world have had to do different things. So whilst this data is available, people aren't there to really uh, digest it uh, because a lot of people have uh, been let go or shifted their focus. Uh, is there something easy that uh, uh, I can I can get access to that gives me what I can expect in my market from inbound travel and for my targeted uh, clientele? Yeah, it's it is it's a great question. I think it is improving all the time. Um, but all those things that you mentioned now. So we talked about performance data. And then you have the supply, like which increases new hotels as a neighbor, understanding that at the same time as all that arrivals data, especially if you're in a market that is dependent on international arrival, but even domestic arrivals, where people are coming from, the more, and it could be credit card data, whatever it is, every time you add one of those components, it is very often coming from different sources, right? And we do, we do what we can to put as much in one bucket, but, you know, airlift and those things, it's the same for us. So... I think what I'm hearing, and it would be great to hear from uh, Mehran and Anurag on this, I'm hearing a lot from the leadership 
uh, in hotel companies and, and asset managers that the investment in technology has been so accelerated that it, it puts things more in one place. Uh, and I, I'm glad to hear it because it's obviously much easier to make a decision when you combine all those things through modern technology, which has other benefits, of course, because the more you invest in it, in theory at least, it's supposed to make your, your top line a bit lighter uh, if, if that increases the, the pressure on your wage bill, if you can um, you know, facilitate and simplify things like that. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Uh, Jesper, it, it, throughout the, the, the globe, at least the trend has been that average rate has bounced back faster than uh, occupancies has. Uh, is that the case in Asia-Pacific region? And if so, what would you attribute that to? Yeah, it's been really interesting. And I suppose that's one of the main differences when people say, is this like... Um, uh, Remember when this started, everyone asked us to compare it with uh, SARS, MERS, uh, Asian financial crisis or GFC and the global financial crisis. It is a very different crisis because it's an omni-demand crisis. And we, we know that matters. When you pick it apart more now that we have more data, we can see that we don't have group business, right? This is, well, some countries do now, but throughout the crisis, it's been transient, which normally carries a higher rate. So that impacts the rate as well. So it didn't fall as far once you start get businesses back. There's also that pent up pricing power. You only need to look at Maldives and other markets to see, are people prepared to pay? People prepared to even do minimum length of stay? And absolutely, we're seeing it. And I suppose the fourth point would be, hotels are raising their rates throughout this crisis. We're seeing that as a global phenomenon. And, and very often that has to do with the higher operational costs. Like everything that comes with the pandemic, what you need to do, and it's higher wage bill, of course, to be attractive to get the staff back, um, and it's a higher water and energy bills. All those things contribute. And to top it all off, which makes it harder, is, of course, the inflation, uh, the environment we're living in, where your um, inflation-adjusted or nominal revenue isn't quite the same with, with a few basis points as well. So, uh, yes, well, I'll turn it over to Sam in a, in a bit, but one last question. Uh, let's look at different segments and recovery from these segments. Uh, is is uh, a leisure segment growing faster or is the business traveler coming back? And, and what's, the, what's the prognosis for my segment? Yeah, uh, it's one of the more common questions and obviously something we try to track as much as possible. It is really cool to see that uh, we, because we talked so much about China, how that quick V-shaped and then continued V-shapes, but it's so big. So overall, they've been able to have business travel, mice groups and that kind of stuff that are happening. But after that, India has uh, proven a lot of people wrong in a way in that recovery now, because people said, oh, it's leisure, what's happening? And it's like in the first recovery in India, it was Goa, it was Rajasthan, uh, you know, Jaipur, et cetera. But now this time around, it was urban markets that drove that um, with the vaccination policy working real well. And the same thing is in Indonesia. Uh, we've seen great midweek business, people traveling around doing small groups and that kind of thing. So there are some countries that are able to grow that. Um, and I suppose maybe the best example is Japan. People forget that Japan regionally, where there were less of the restrictions and they were less impacted by cases, they've had 40, 50, almost 60% occupancy in, in the south, say Fukuoka and up north, but not Hokkaido. They've kept that going. 
it's been in the Tokyo, obviously, with the Olympics and all that. So it's very bifurcated again what, what's happened. I, listen, it, it depends because normally it's leisure. I think Shenzhen is a good example because I just learned that they canceled or postponed two massive events. Now, one of them has 20,000 attendants, 20,000. Wow. So that's, that's, you know, Barcelona, that's massive events. So events is certainly back if you look at that. And they postponed that and it will come again because they V-shaped, right? So it really depends on where you operate and how dependent you are on that model. Fair enough. Well, let me, let me hand it over to Sam and I'll be back with you in a moment. Sam. Thank you. Yes, Jesper, I'm uh, interested in, if we look at the, the pre-pandemic uh, pre business and the mix how it was, and now you, you talked about uh, the mix of a weekday business. Can you talk a little bit more about that uh, weekday business? Uh, in what, how much does it really represent uh, to the business as a whole compared to what maybe it wasn't so important uh, pre-pandemic? Yeah, and it's a, it's a fair point because one, on one hand, of course, it's, it's the fact that the more, the more days you have with business, clearly you do better. Uh, we know so many countries that look at, you know, Leisure, you got a Friday night if you're in uh, Penang, but if you're in Langkawi, to take a Malaysian example, you get two nights because it's flight distance, right? So they get something different. And as soon as you start building up that extra day and add it up, which we see in those countries that I mentioned, that makes a huge difference on, on that amount because it's real demand. Remember, we have a lot of countries that uh, rely on either quarantine business in hotels, which uh, gives a low ADR, if any, uh, you know, some kind of occupancy, keep it going, uh, which means operational costs later to, to get back. But that mix in markets means that every time we do it, pre-pandemic, there was such safe seasonality um, and, and source markets and how it worked. So I'm really, and it's a topic I often bring up, like how will markets be able to shift their source markets, right? And I think it is starting to happen. I think some will do a better job than others. If you are over-dependent on one source market before that, say the classic example of mainland Chinese, um, when you come out of this and you're not, you're, and spread your eggs in more buckets, I think that's a great way to build up that base on weekdays uh, as well. Maldives case in point, uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I read somewhere about that, um resorts which are in a very isolated or distant places from everything are tend to do better than ever can you talk about uh, talk about those kind of destinations that uh, has been maybe very exclusive or have been very uh, high point, high price point and what's happening in that segment where it's the wellness or or that or well-being market and so on yeah it's been uh, obviously great to, see, to your last point there the price point right it people didn't care <laughs> they were happy to pay uh, to definitely go. Yeah. Um, the earliest example we reported 18 months ago were like outside Hangzhou, Chandao Lake, right? And it was all about that isolation, great properties. There was just like it was built for the pandemic. They did well early because yeah. uh, there was two things that contributed to our early success is based absolutely on location and what kind of property I was set up um, with the logistics around it working as well. They just fell into place and who knew? But at the same time, it's also... Uh, looking at the, the surrounding areas and, and are you close enough to a heavily populated area? And that's why they gain so much because you have that isolated property and everything works, but you could be far away and it wouldn't be able to work or restrictions about border rules. Look at Australia, right? Queensland would have and had a lot, but then borders have been shut so much to New South Wales. 
So in a lot of aspects, it feels like it's a lot of luck uh, if you if you had the, the fundamentals to to drive that and be able to do it. But I think it's interesting because there is a, a correlation back to uh, Amit's point there about real estate. All those people coming back now to the office, many of them for their new leases and, you know, rents are still staying flat in most of those corporate markets. They're looking at, hang on, we need a different kind of space that works for this if this continues and comes back to lock in a five-year deal or something. And I, I'd be interested to see how that pans out with hotels because the trend has been in hotels to do fewer keys, right? Upper mid-scale, like that, that's been the global trend. Um, less of the three, 400 key properties and more of the 150 to 200 um, in, in terms of projects. Yeah. Um, we just have a, one of our viewers asking, is it working the long stay at the isolated resorts working from resorts packages? I think he's referring to, or the person is referring to, that people go to isolated places to actually work from there rather than, and uh, uh, any thoughts on that? Have you seen any of development, how people are maybe changing their uh, way of working that they go to a distant resort and actually work from there rather than staying at home? Yeah, that's definitely happened. I suppose when you put it into the bigger numbers, it tends to water down because it's still, you know, not the masses that we talk about that, that drives our industry. That is, you know, hundreds of thousand corporate travelers and leisure travelers that want to do what they did before and hopefully can do soon. But uh, listen, it's not just anecdotal. We, we can see it as well and hear about it uh, because when we look at um, the length of stay, right, and how someone would go... And in the beginning, listen, this was done by quarantine. Okay, you need, like in the beginning of Phuket or whatever it was, you had to stay two weeks and be like, sure, I'll stay there three months. How about that? So it's not just the stories of someone who flew to the Maldives in January 2020 and stayed there uh, four months, <laughs> or Sri Lanka, or any of our, our, our colleagues here at properties. So we have those, and they yeah. obviously hit the news, those stories. Sure. I mean, here in Finland and, you know, Sweden, uh, when November comes, people can't wait to get to Spain or, or Southern Europe to work from there. And a lot of people were very happy that there, were, there was a lockdown and actually they could work from there because it was quite ex accepted that you don't have to be in an office and you can work with your laptop. That's a, it's a good point. And I'll tell you, the, the example where we're seeing that already now is that I know from Thailand, right, which is, again, a, a popular uh, destination for Nordic countries, uh, a lot of villas are booked for Christmas um, for staying over an extended period. So uh, Finns and Swedes have absolutely booked to their favorite Thai destinations and hope that regulations stay intact so they can go <laughs> and stay there. And, you know, there are Swedish uh, school, for instance, in Thailand, so they can bring the kids and keep working there and that kind of stuff. So that's absolutely an interesting trend. Yes, yes. Uh, very good. Um, just a final question. You mentioned about... Uh, some of the winners now for this particular time, uh, how the business in India has grown up. Are you referring to the Indian domestic business or what was your comment earlier? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's been it's been quite phenomenal, right? But again, last year, I was so driven by the leisure markets in Goa and high-end hotels to what we just spoke about. But then over these months, not only was it driven by big cities, the Mumbai's, the Delhi and Chennai, etc. We started seeing that coming in, and yes, the the, the cricket uh, helped as well uh, in high-end hotels uh, for sure. Uh, I can talk more about that, but it, it 
when cities and urban markets start doing it, like India and Indonesia, the way they vaccinated on focusing on the big cities rather than regional, trying to get that going, the engine going, that seems to have been a good formula. Uh, it's been so impressive to see how quickly. So one is the markets, and then how quickly it then starts dripping out from the Friday and Saturday and goes into Thursday and Wednesdays. Uh, so Sunday, again, becomes that lower day. Uh, I mean, the occupancy is now across many of the Indian markets is, is uh, phenomenal, phenomenal by global standards. Okay. Well, Jesper, thank you very much for your, your comments you. and your views. And let's go back over to Abit. Thank you. Yes, for one one more question before we bring our next guest in. Uh, are you seeing any changes relative to uh, hotel brand affiliation? Are there are people going more independent versus upper upscale brands or upscale brands or any of those that, that you can shed light on if, if there are any particular changes? Yeah, I think uh, we we continue to see some of them that were accelerated before, right? So we track that every single day, and we see, say, in China, a lot of from brand to individual, so unaffiliated, but very often in the lower tiers. But then at the same time, there are definitely uh, some reflex between brands, uh, but not obviously not so much from distressed assets, because as you know, that's not happening too much, especially here in Asia. So it's less maybe than one would expect. Uh, I think all alternative accommodations will 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 keep growing as well uh, through that. Uh, less, I suppose, it's more mature now. Um, we have to remember there are some cool brands that have popped up and continue to do well, like a Chinese group brand called uh, Zhuyo, which had these pod hotels and things that seems to resonate quite well still. Um, so, I think slightly more in terms of the changes. But I wouldn't say massive uh, how it's impacting uh, the, the overall markets. Well, there, there are lots there and lots, lots of, uh, lots of uh, regional brands regional that are also available in uh, uh, Asia-Pacific yeah. area. So it'll be interesting to see how their performance uh, comes together. But yes, Fred, thank you so much for your uh, input. Please stay with us. We'll have you back in a moment. But. Uh, at this point, I would like to bring up Anurag Bhatnagar so that we can talk a little bit about the Leela Palaces, hotels and resorts. Uh, welcome, Anurag. Thank you. Uh, Anurag, uh, give us a very, very, very brief uh, overview of what 2021 has been like, and we will be mostly talking about forward-looking information, but tell us what 2021 for Leela has been like. I think for the country, if I start for India, it was a mixed bag. I mean, quarters Q2 was devastating when the second wave of uh, Corona hit the country. And uh, just when the hotels had started to recover, we were hit by the second wave. But all the pent up demand and the revenge tourism and the domestic market really resurfaced, I would say, towards early Q3. And I can see now the state that we are in Q4 is likely to be very, very robust and positive. Taking a cue from what uh, Jesper said earlier, um, you know, our resort portfolio is doing 140% in terms of uh, using 2019 as a base year, primarily led by average daily rates, ADR, as well as consumption uh, of uh, larger suites and villas, villas with plunge pool, uh, the higher end category of our rooms. 
Uh, we have also seen a change in the consumer mindset, which will continue, which we forecast to continue beyond Q4 into Q1 as well. Uh, typically, 70% of business in luxury hotels was uh, international, which obviously didn't happen in 2021. Uh, we are seeing all of that starting to begin. I mean, we see the queries and the base building up towards Q1 of 2022. So overall, I think whilst 2022 was an year of reimagination and relearning, 2021 has been more of a foundational year for us to reset and grow into 2022 and beyond. Well, any any um, systemic changes, Anurag, particularly from a luxury consumer point of view, any systemic changes that you see that are going to be with us for a long time? I think the first big change that we have observed uh, in all our resorts, hotels and palaces is that the utilization of larger inventory rooms, larger space, as I mentioned earlier, villas with plunge pools, um, and it, that's been a big change. Uh, I heard Jesper say that people are willing to spend more on themselves. People have, our customers, our guests have realized that life is finite, especially after wave two. We saw many people, unfortunately, getting impacted. The length of stay has increased tremendously. What used to be 2.5 to 3 room night, uh, you know, as length of stay is now over four uh, nights. So that's almost a 25% increase in length of stay. Uh, the overall spend uh, on the retreat or the resort per room night, whether it's for food and beverage or spa, uh, has increased. There's a lot more consumption of wellness and holistic wellness products, the spa and the vitality by Adila and the other products that we have offered. There is a, a work from anywhere, work from home, work from a hotel, work from a resort in Rajasthan or a palace uh, in Udaipur or, or a hotel in Goa next to the beach has literally become the norm. So we have seen a lot of uh, business guests pivoting towards resort locations. Uh, that's I think that trend is going to continue for a few more quarters. Um, so And also, I think uh, in terms of, again, a mindset, giving back to the community, uh, more sensitivity, compassion, and empathy towards people who have been impacted by Corona and COVID. Uh, dining at home uh, using, um, you know, the security and safety of, uh, let's say, a brand like the Leela. A lot of our consumers and customers are now ordering food and asking, and we are asking, actually sending our chefs across. So all of this, some of this, we definitely believe is going to be a trend that's going to continue deep into 2022 or so. Anurag, so, uh, 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 let's talk a little bit about the food and beverage offering also because of your background and your passion uh, to food and beverage. Uh, any any changes relative to the offerings? Uh, you just mentioned that you uh, have also sent chefs out to residences for people to prepare food and takeout has been a big element. Anything else that is new and different that you're doing relative to F&B offering? I think wellness and vitality have become very intrinsic uh, uh, in food and beverage, starting from your arrival experience to your welcome amenities to the products that you put um, use for your food and beverage as well as what you put in, in the room. Uh, uh, it is coupled with the awareness and the exposure of our customers and guests. And so that's become very relevant to us. Secondly, innovation and creativity, which was always relevant, especially in India, 
where, where the percentage of millennials and the HNIs is ever expanding. They form a very big set for us in terms of our food and beverage offerings. Now that's become even more relevant than today because you know the six to nine months of absolute lockdown, almost everybody has come out as an FNB guru because they have really polished their awareness and knowledge and uh, I mean they keep our chefs creatively challenged and we are seeing that happen a lot. On the banqueting and event space, led by uh, you know uh, restrictions of, on account of Corona, we have found that more fine dining, more plated service, intimate personalized gatherings have become a norm. Uh, the change in the restrictions in terms of timings, we see more earlier India typically, you would walk into a restaurant unlike other parts of the world, you probably would find the restaurants empty and their assets not getting fully utilized till somewhere till 8.39 p.m. Wherein now, um, many more guests have got accustomed to reaching a restaurant at 6 p.m. Uh, because they need to, the restaurant shut down at 10 p.m. So early utilization of space has become another trend. So I think food and beverage has also been very creative in terms of uh, technology adoption whether it is using QR codes and contactless menus and ensuring that a dine-around experience is also well-managed and well-handled. So some of these trends are here to stay. And as an offering, the creativity, the taste, presentation, uh, value, uh, the overall food and beverage experience is has always been relevant and has become even more relevant today because more and more people are aware and involved. Well, uh, uh, you are absolutely correct. During the lockdown, I think uh, food channel or food related websites were uh, extremely well sought after and everybody was trying different things and all of a sudden TikTok pasta became the biggest hit. So uh, lots of new trends have, have uh, uh, come out as a result of this pandemic. Let's talk a little bit about the famous Indian weddings. Uh, tell us how that segment has changed and, and will that will those changes uh, be around long term or do you think it's just during the restrictive uh, uh, time period? Well, I hope it's there for long term. It's changed for the better for us and I think for all hotels in the luxury space, in the luxury segments, uh, primarily because there were no flights operating out of India, international flights. And India, as Jasper would know, is a huge outbound market as well. Uh, the Indian guests, uh, there are more than 20 million people who travel outside. So all of them, especially our luxury hotels and resorts, became destinations for high-end weddings, but in a smaller format, if I may say. So instead of having big, fat, rich, large format Indian weddings, we still had you know, the first three, but in a smaller format because of the restrictions. So there was a lot more focus in terms of detailing, in terms of space utilization and space creation and the entire programming of weddings. And uh, somewhat, they really sustained us in a big way across 2021. Our wedding average rate and in a buyout scenario, uh, we were in a position uh, like all of the luxury hotels in the country to charge a premium. Uh, over what they would typically pay in 2019. So we kind of rode that way in terms of revenue management and, uh, you know, run of the house, no more run of the house rates and yielding per wood category and everything else that we preach about and sometimes get to practice. Uh, we did all of that. 
So uh, we are hoping that this trend will continue. Although flights from outside uh, India outbound are, is increasing, uh, the number of weddings uh, remain the same, but the, you know the format was smaller. So I think whilst uh, uh, India itself uh, has crossed 1 billion mark in terms of vaccination, at least for our first dose, and as we reach the 40% mark in terms of complete vaccination, uh, we definitely believe that at least for the first two quarters, uh, the Indian wedding, which has really sustained our hotels, will, will remain a very, very strong component of our business as a market segment. And hopefully by Q3, the inbound would come back uh, closer to its pre-pandemic 2019 levels to uh, bridge the gap. Overall, as a company, we are forecasting, given our mix, our unique mix of hotels in key gateway cities and catchment areas, and palaces in the best of locations in the country. We are looking at reaching 75% of our total revenues that we achieved in 2019. And weddings is a big part of that. Ah, oh, terrific. That's, that's a great news. And certainly the shift from uh, international or foreign visitor to domestic visitor, India is a huge, huge, huge market of both domestic consumption and outbound. So you were able to capitalize uh, a bit of that. And Rag, let me, let me turn it over to Sam and I will be back with you in a moment, Sam. Thank you. Um, luxury as a way of hospitality has been around for uh, quite some time. And of course, uh, in India, companies like yourself are renowned for providing that luxury experience. Can you talk a little bit about what has uh, what are the changes you've seen in expectations from the luxury market? Uh, just wondering from your point of view, I would be interested to learn a little bit of uh, what are the changes perhaps because of the, the generation shift in travel or there might be something else. Maybe you can enlighten us on this part, please. So thank you, Sam. I think uh, thank you for that. Leela has always been in the luxury space. And if I may use this forum to let you know that for two years, back to back, the Leela Group has been voted as the world's number one brand by Travel and Leisure US uh, as a part of the Consumer Readers Survey. And we definitely want to make a hat-trick out of it. But coming back to your question in terms of uh, the luxury, uh, we use this time to reinvest back into a product and asset quality, upgrading our assets uh, to ensure that when, once the market's really opened, the product per se was absolutely world-class because we knew uh, there were no distractions of guests, so to speak. When we were running single-digit occupancies, we could actually take things apart and reset them back. We invested a lot on the product. We also invested a lot in terms of inculcating a luxury mindset through various trainings of all levels of our associates. We hired the best talent, kind of opened three new hotels. So luxury today to me in terms of India is all led by experiential stays. It's like what you do is, is, to, is to be kind of unadulterated by just product itself, but using more time as luxury. What kind of experience and activations can you do? What's your programming all about? How personalized and how predictive can you get about your customer needs for your guest needs? It's like pre-arrival, we were able to use technology to put in a guest recognition program for repeat guests. We are also able to use, again, technology to ensure that we capture all the preferences pre-arrival to ensure that we were more intuitive and anticipatory in our services. We fine-tuned the Leela Butler services, what we call the Leela Palace services program. We use this downtime to train a lot, 
get the focus towards personalization in a big way so that we could, you know, without being obtrusive, yet be in there when our guests came back to the hotels. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, our guests are being far more particular in terms of what they consume, uh, how, how green is, uh, is the hotel. So sustainability and usage of the natural elements, uh, bringing the environment in more open spaces. To me, that's really an expectation from a, uh, the new luxury guests. Um, and of course, wellness, luxury in wellness, where it's not just a very regimental wellness, but more holistic beyond just spa and food and beverage offerings into more of mind-body rituals, the music programming and all that also has to come into play. So we use this time uh, and uh, to really cater to our luxury customers. Well, you have a great tradition of, uh, of uh, uh, the wellness and, and uh, usually uh, in Europe you see, or maybe perhaps in the US, they say that this is the next best thing and they come up with the idea, but that actually it has been around in India for, for centuries. So, but, uh, but what I was going to be wondering is that uh, uh, in terms of uh, dining, you mentioned the sustainability and also people are looking for maybe uh, plant-based food or some along those lines because we had a segment a while ago about dining and the, the, one of the hottest chefs in the U.S. now, he, he's an expert on plant-based and one of the luxury hotel chains hired him to open a, a vegan restaurant in their luxury hotels. Uh, I don't know how exciting that sounds to you, but because maybe you're already doing that, but I want to get your reaction to how this is seen from outside into this aspect of the luxury market. No, completely. Farm to fork, organic food, growing your own vegetables, herbs, straight from your from your own kitchen gardens to the plate. Uh, all of that is extremely popular and more and more of our guests are getting engaged in that. Uh, we have seen that buffets are kind of, uh, they were initially very popular and they were kind of a great platform for our chefs to be creative. We are seeing more plated food coming out um, with a great balance of cuisine. Whilst buffets are still relevant in certain markets and certain hotels, but we have seen a lot of uh, focus and expectation and a re request from our guests in terms of more plated food. We have seen innovation happening in food and beverage where there's a mix. So, as I said, overall, I think post-COVID world, uh, with the awareness of our guests and the realization that everybody lives only once and life is finite, more and more focus, whether it's cuisine or wellness offerings or, or the vegetables, fruits that one consumes. And so wellness has become a lifestyle now. It's no longer something which is uh, and vitality, I finally go a step beyond, is a program that we created at the Leela, catering exactly to this expectation of our guests. Very good. Well, Anurag, thank you very much for your insight, and I'll hand it over back to Abid. Thank you. Abid. Looking at the luxury offerings, um, it, it, the market has evolved over a period of time. Are there services and facilities today that that are not relevant to the luxury consumer? Is there anything that you think is passe? Well, I think one thing which uh, used to be uh, kind of a, you know, correlated very closely with luxury was when you were paying in a certain premium category or staying in a suite or paying, you know, in a villa, you were, especially in India, I would say, you were used to seeing four people around you, 
literally one in every eight feet of you. That I think is a bit passe. People like to be in control. Whilst our guests want to be recognized, they want to be serviced, to be intuitive and anticipatory and not very obtrusive. So luxury today is not just about having six people catering to you all the time, but it's also more about being more anticipatory, more predictive, and giving it to you before you ask for it, offering that service with a warm and warmth and graciousness. So that's, I think, is a trend uh, which we have observed. The second thing, uh, which probably uh, earlier, there was a lot of usage in terms of collaterals and paper and uh, large spaces which are taken from a design standpoint in our rooms and our villas. Uh, today, uh, our, our next generation of luxury consumers don't necessarily require them. As I mentioned earlier, they can work from anywhere. They can put a laptop anywhere and work from there. So as we practice design thinking in our hotels, we're also looking at how our rooms of the future should be like, how a product category should be like. And last but not the least, I think as a trend, I believe that, uh, uh, you know, we, we really are in a position today to embrace more of the environment, more of the larger community. And it's like, uh, it's a trend which wasn't there earlier, but today we feel post Corona, we see a lot more empathy and compassion, not just for our associates, but also for our partners, vendors, and other related associates coming through uh, from, our, uh, from our guests as well. So I think we see a lot less negotiation in some cases, and we hope this uh, this will continue and remain. Well, thank you. Thank you, Anurag, for that. Uh, I really appreciate uh, all the insights. I know you press for time, so <clears throat> thanks for joining us for this conversation. Please stick around as long as you can, and if you need to go, we certainly understand. Uh, at this thank point, you. I would like to bring up Heron Kure, um, Heron, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Avid, and nice to be with you and Sam. Heron, talk about Sri Lanka as a destination and the impact of pandemic. Unfortunately, Sri Lanka uh, had just had the unfortunate incident of Easter bombing and, and the market was just starting to recover and here comes the next challenge. So walk us through as to how the destination has responded and, and uh, what's, what's on the uh, agenda at, at this particular point. Yes, you're right that uh, we, had a, we had a terrible time, uh, uh, you know, with, with, the, with the bombing. And as you said, we were just about recovering when uh, COVID struck us. So it was actually the hoteliers and the travel agents uh, went through probably the worst ever time that Sri Lanka tourism has faced. I mean, you know, bear in mind that we had an internal conflict for 26 years. Even that wasn't as bad as what we went through in the last 18 months. And then, of course, the about 10 months before COVID uh, due to the uh, Easter Sunday bombings. Uh, so we survived. Thanks to the government intervention, uh, we were given um, uh, a moratorium on repayment of loan and interest. Uh, we were also given some uh, subsistence by the government for a couple of months to pay the staff and so on. Uh, so with all of that, we survived. But the last 
uh, a few months from, uh, is, let's say, May until September was particularly bad because there was a countrywide lockdown. Uh, people could not travel around. And that really hurt uh, uh, domestic market as well. So it was, it, was, it was a very, very bad period for us. Now, thankfully, after the restrictions are lifted, domestic travel has uh, really begun to uh, grow and also uh, international tourists are also coming in. So hopefully the tough times are over and the tough will get going. Absolutely. Well said, Hiran. Hiran, unlike uh, India or China, there is massive population base and tremendous domestic demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sri Lanka, as beautiful as a destination it is, and, and you operate some of the stunning hotels all around the island, the domestic potential is still limited. Talk to us a little bit about that. How were you able to pivot from heavy reliance on right. foreign visitor to domestic traveler? Right. To give you an idea, Abid, you know, in a good year, let's say two, 2018, uh, was probably the best ever year for tourism over here. Uh, our earnings were 4.3 billion US dollars. Sri Lankan spending outside the country was 1.7 billion US dollars. So that remained in the country and some of them did actually spend some money. For example, for us, even in that good year of 2018, the number one market was the domestic traveler. Uh, We had 25% of our business from Sri Lankans, the corporate sector, using our hotels for events, functions, weddings, uh, and the Sri Lankan leisure market. So there is, a, I would say, you know, 10 to 15% of the population which is reasonably affluent and who are able to go into luxury hotels and uh, spend money. Uh, so that that actually cushions us a bit and keeps us going. That's That's really helpful. But yes, nothing to be compared with India and of course China where there are uh, you know, three to four hundred million uh, people who, who will have the same uh, spending power as against our one to one and a half million people. Well, thank you. Uh, it, it is it is really interesting as we go around the globe, the phenomena of uh, uh, outbound uh, a market that was completely shut down because of the border mm-hmm. closings those folks were able to remain within the geographic bounds and, and uh, they were able to fill some of the gap uh, that was created as a result of the shutdowns. Um, so it, it, uh, Hiran, talk a little bit about uh, uh, 2021, um, some of the challenges if you uh, would share with us, obviously with the shutdowns and, and total changes that we all had to deal with, what were you up against? Your cash flow issues, your labor, uh, how did you deal with them? What did you do to work through 2021 and where we are today? Right. Up to now, I think one of the main, main, main losses for us, in addition, of course, the financial losses, humongous. Uh, you know, we, we've never had such a, such a, uh, a bad uh, experience financially. But on top of it, uh, we lost some of our good staff. As Jesper was saying, 
Maldives is doing extremely well. And some of the very good food that you eat are cooked by our chefs from Sri Lanka. So we lost, uh, we've been losing most of our trained uh, uh, cooks, chefs uh, to Maldives Islands and the Middle East. Uh, that's, that's been a blow for us. Uh, we've also lost some of the other uh, associates who are in finance uh, you know, side and the engineering side to other industries. They, they felt that, okay, they may not see a future in tourism, so they left us to join uh, uh, you know, garment industries and uh, other industries or left the country. Uh, so that was a blow for us. Uh, uh, some of them, uh, some of the hoteliers found it difficult to maintain their hotels. Uh, some of the uh, foreigners who were owning uh, little villas and uh, small guest houses and so on, they just disappeared into thin air. They just didn't show up. Uh, the staff were left on the lurch. They could not, uh, you know, survive. Uh, so there, there, there were a lot of those, you know, uh, pandemic-related issues that uh, caused uh, quite a blow for us. Uh, and now, finally, uh, since September... Things are falling into place. Uh, most people are. Uh, the the another 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 issue is a loss of confidence once again. You know, we took a long time after the end of the conflict for the hospitality sector to get back the confidence they had lost because we were just, you know, catering to cheap and cheerful tourists who were coming here for twenty thirty dollars. So finally, we were, you know, getting into a situation where we were get catering to discerning travelers and who were willing to pay some money. And once again, that confidence is lost. I can see that happening uh, in some of our hotel partners, their confidence to uh, charge higher rates. So I was encouraged with what uh, Jesper was saying, you know, uh, people are not reluctant to pay. And, and that confidence is not there with my colleagues uh, in the industry, even in, uh, in, in our own company. Uh, some of my colleagues uh, don't have that confidence to uh, charge, uh, you know, a reasonable price for what they want to pay. So we are, uh, that's, that's a challenge. Uh, and uh, so these, these we need to slowly overcome, get back the product in place uh, to, to uh, welcome uh, the, the tourists from overseas. You know, Hiran, you bring up a good point. Uh, 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 hoteliers typically, for some reason, we tend to be gun shy when it comes to yes. rates. Uh, our our way of inducing demand typically is to drop the rate. So whether that uh, induces demand or not, I tend to think it does not. But that's what's practice. For once, this time around, the worst time in the history of our industry, it appears that the rate is holding strong. So hopefully Sri Lanka is experiencing the same thing and that'll give all of our colleagues uh, some confidence to make yeah. sure that that continues on. Aaron, you talked a little bit about government's involvement with uh, uh, grace periods and forbearance on debt and that sort of stuff. Is there more capital available uh, where you having to recapitalize some of your assets? Did you have to go raise some more uh, debt? Uh, what was the, the capital market situation like throughout this time period, but particularly for yourself? Well, there are vultures everywhere. I mean, you know, so uh, 
I'm sure there'll be people who will be on the lookout for, you know, you know, bargain deals. I, I mean, you know, from, from a major capital market point of view, right until now, I haven't seen that much of interest. But now with the restrictions lifted and people uh, beginning to travel and confidence slowly returning, I would think that there'll be people who will be looking for uh, opportunities. Uh, uh, capital markets have not been active, uh, actively promoting uh, the leisure sector uh, until now. Uh, so, so there can be uh, a change happening in, 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 you know, as we speak, uh, things are changing. There's dynamic change happening uh, even over here. So, so I can, I, I would believe that, uh, you know, there'll be, uh, you know, international investors who will want to come and uh, there are some trophy assets over here uh, and they'll be looking at, uh, you know, this is probably a good time for some people to come in and uh, invest uh, in Sri Lanka. Government is very much focused on tourism. Tourism is a trust industry here. A lot of preferential treatment is given to the industry. Our head of state, the president, is uh, very much focused and he believes that tourism is uh, one sector that can uh, boost the economy. Uh, Sri Lanka needs foreign currency and he knows, and uh, the government knows that uh, 80 to 80, at least 80% of the money that comes in remains in the country, filters down to everybody. So that's... Uh, uh, government is very much focused on, uh, uh, you know, getting getting uh, uh, the tourism sector going again, and they'll welcome people who want to invest in Sri Lanka. Well, if if my memory serves me correctly, tourism traditionally has been the third largest foreign exchange earner in Sri Lanka uh, throughout this time period. But uh, obviously, with with the bombing, there was a bit of a drop, and now with pandemic, there is a tremendous drop. And at, and at one point, there was a huge influx of foreign investments into Sri Lanka. Is that trend continuing, Hira? Uh, well, the the foreign influx of investments came in until 2018-2019 period. Uh, we had we had quite a number of uh, investors. I mean, you know, we have uh, two hotels from Shangri-La and uh, many other uh, foreign brands, Marriott, uh, Sheraton, uh, Hilton, Hyatt are all uh, operating over here. Uh, and also there are, you know, uh, individually owned uh, properties as well uh, by foreign nationals over here. Uh, so there are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, facilities investment opportunities given to them. So that's happening. Uh, obviously, the last two years, uh, not many uh, were able to do it, but I, I, I would think that uh, in time to come, it'll, it'll happen again. Terrific. And, well, let me, yeah. uh, let me turn it over to Sam Eric, and I'll be back with you in a moment. Sam. Thank you. Um, I mean, Sri Lanka is one of my favorite countries for the beauty and also the eco-travel and the and also how things have been looked after, the beautiful elephants, and there's many things that people are talking stories about. But I've been now, I was looking, uh, because I knew you were going to be here today, I was wondering, what is the government now doing to promote the tourism for Sri Lanka, particularly for the travelers coming from, from Europe? I have, I'm just kind of trying to find something, but I, I'm still looking, where, the, where is that big marketing campaign? 
Well, <laughs> that's, that's a good question, Sam, and I'm glad you asked that question. Yes, government is planning a massive uh, uh, promotional and positioning campaign. Uh, you know, governments have all sorts of, you know, rules and regulations. There are financial re regulations, there are administrative regulations. Uh, and I know for a fact the Tourism, Tourism Promotion Bureau in the country is working on a, you know, five-year plan uh, to, to uh, uh, you know, position the country. And in the meantime, there's a short-term plan as well to revive the tourism industry. So I think the first step was to get all the restrictions lifted, uh, to make it easy for people to come into the country. And that's been done. Uh, I think it's one of the easiest of the countries in Asia to come to uh, with, a, with a negative PCR taken 72 hours before you travel. And if you are twice vaccinated, uh, you just walk into the country and, uh, you know, you're free to go uh, anywhere you like to go. And all the tourism uh, uh, services, facilities, the religious sites, the cultural sites, wildlife and nature sites are all operating. And this is the best time to come. So I think the first, uh, first uh, initiative was that. And also we were taken out of the red list in most of the European countries. And now there is a sh I know uh, there is a short-term uh, strategic plan being uh, laid out where they will work with uh, the two operators, the online travel agencies, and the hoteliers who have, you know, booking engines and so on to bring back uh, tourism to the country. Uh, that's the short-term plan. The, as I said, the long-term plan, because we've never had a very good... Uh, uh, positioning and uh, promotion uh, campaign for many, many years, and that's been worked out as well. So, Sam, you won't be dis uh, disappointed for too long. It <laughs> happens soon. Yeah, very good, Hiran. Yeah, I didn't want to press the point, but I thought I have to just share with you what I, what I have noticed. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. Now, another thing is, of course, that uh, in the areas where the government is working a little bit on their own pace to get things going, then of course the industry has an opportunity to do something is and to use the social media to to reach directly to uh, to the consumers. And any thoughts, how are, how are you doing that or any thoughts that could be benefit the viewers also, uh, ways to uh, kind of bring the uh, in their yeah. people to get to know you much each, better? Each, each of our, yes, each of our companies, I mean, you know, the companies that can afford, I mean, you know, we have we have representatives uh, working uh, for us uh, in the United Kingdom, in France, in Germany, uh, in the main markets, in India for sure. Uh, India will be a massive market for us uh, in time to come. China when it opens out. So we have been uh, working out. I mean, likewise, uh, similar companies have their own marketing opportunities, uh, social media and other platforms. They will be uh, working on to promote. So yes, he, uh, individual independent companies will be working together. I represent the Hotels Association of Sri Lanka, so we have a marketing uh, uh, committee. We will be doing some joint promotions, uh, working with the two operators. Yeah. So that's that's happening. And as I speak, we are getting, uh, we are receiving uh, uh, confirmed bookings for the next couple of months. Uh, November is looking reasonably good. Uh, December will be very good. Very good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So thank you very much, Hiran, for your insight. And back to you, Abid. Hiran, talk a little bit about the sustainability and the fear of over-tourism. Um, I know in, in uh, Sri Lanka, 
after the the domestic conflict, it was being repositioned, and there was lots of emphasis on sustainability elements. Is that still the focus? Uh, are the natural assets as well as human assets are they being well protected? Uh, and and what are some of the initiatives that have been talked about from a destination perspective? Sustainability and wellness are very, very high on the agenda. I mean, uh, sustainability is something that we pride ourselves in. Uh, Jetwing as a company is uh, probably the country's leader in sustainability, renewable energy to waste management to everything. And now many other hoteliers are uh, going ahead with that. The Tourist Development Authority has a, a grading system, so they will also be you know, uh, doing all the measurements, uh, standards, uh, supervision, and so on. Overall, uh, the destination, I mean, you know, there was an attempt by our president to uh, go 100% organic as well, even though that failed a little bit, but still there is a plan within the next three to five years uh, for the country to be more organic uh, in, you know, in, in farming than uh, most other places. Since it's a smaller country, I think it's very much doable. And uh, very much uh, most companies, are, most farmers are now learning the benefits of uh, organic farming and going ahead with that. So, uh, yeah, using renewable energy, we have a lot of sun here, a lot of wind here as well. Uh, so many are going into solar, biomass energy. Uh, so that's, that focus is still very high on the agenda. Wellness, on the other hand, what we've learned from India, the Ayurveda, and as also the Sri Lankan form, it's a combination of Ayurveda and uh, local medicine called Helavedakama, and that's uh, uh, taking on as well. And many have found uh, sort of soft cures for COVID-2 and uh, immune-boosting uh, ways of, you know, using traditional uh, uh, ways. And uh, Sam was talking of... Uh, plant-based uh, uh, food, and that's pretty high here as well. Uh, most of us, including our own staff, uh, we have been educating them on, uh, you know, slight lifestyle changes, immune boosters, because we don't obviously want another, another bout of uh, COVID in our country, and the staff to uh, come down with, uh, you know, COVID and uh, having had to, again, to quarantine them and to look after them and so on. So, so these are some of the things that are happening. And yes, uh, sustainability will be very, very high on the agenda of everybody. Terrific, terrific. Uh, Sam, let's, let's uh, bring uh, Jasper back in as well. But I'll ask the question to uh, Hiran. Hiran, talk about feeder markets, uh, uh, regional versus long haul. Uh, obviously, India is right next to you. China was contributing a lot of inbound traffic. How has that evolved and, and what are you seeing as trends? Well, just before we stopped for COVID, India was number one, China was number two. They were very close to each other. And the United Kingdom on the longer haul was number three. And the other emerging markets at that time was Australia and the Middle East. Uh, Japan was, you know, kind of steady, uh, but we saw a lot of uh, uplift from Australia and even New Zealand. So these, I believe, once they are 
allowed to travel out again and not only travel out, get back into their own country. Uh, we think that the Australians and the New Zealanders will come here quite a bit. Uh, the Middle Eastern traffic, of course, they love our mountains uh, uh, to, to go out into the forests and the tea plantations. Uh, that will be quite a you know, positive market for us. And, you know, Indian events, weddings, uh, you name it, we get from India and China. Of course, there's a lot of Chinese investment in Sri Lanka. So we believe that uh, that will go on as well. Uh, so so that's, that's the kind of thing. We see a lot of wellness-based travel from Japan and Germany, uh, these two countries, and a little bit from Scandinavia, Denmark and Sweden and so on. So that's, that's the way things are moving. Oh, terrific. Jesper, if I may ask you, uh, China was contributing a lot in the general travel and tourism market. Now, Chinese borders have been uh, shut down for a little while, though I understand they are starting to consider opening it up to certain uh, geographies and, and uh, only vaccinated people. But at one point, uh, virtually $254 billion uh, in 2019 was contributed from one market. Uh, tell us a bit about how that is going to impact the, the, the global nature, but also some of the regional markets that were dominated by Chinese visitors. And I think you have to start as well with the baseline that this the trend before the pandemic was that the outbound growth was slowing down. And, I, and here it makes a good point on how Sri Lanka and other markets already had pivoted in India. People have for years talking about when will the Indian outbound start? When will we see that? Because it's such a powerful engine as well. Uh, Thailand has been talking about for years, how can we and direct flights from India into Phuket had just about increased. So I think, you know, China spent billions into their own domestic offerings to make sure that the Chinese big engine do that. So the domestic just grew so much faster um, in the trains and the roads and everything they did. But it, without a doubt, the Vietnam, the Thailand, the Japan and other markets, 30% dependent on it. And when your nation is 15% plus dependent GDP-wise on tourism, the dent was twice as big now. I think the tourism ministers and associations for countries that can influence this quickly and, and pivot something, obviously will gain and, and spread the eggs like I was talking about earlier in different baskets. But Chinese outbound tourism will absolutely come back. I mean, this is a, a nation where they, they, the group travel with a little flag, uh, that's just a stereotype, right? There's so much FIT coming out of China, going everywhere. And it's not just a tick off a bucket list. And, and right? it's such a big, that is going to continue everywhere, like Australia, US, Europe, uh, and you name it. I think right now, Olympics Beijing is that thing, like one of the high profile things that means so much to China that to risk things is a no-no, right? So if we look just in the near future, you got to hold back uh, and make sure that that works to put on a good face uh, and a good show, TV Olympics or not, right? And then... I agree. I hear about those signals too, opening up then some flights, vaccinated travelers and things coming in and out of China starting to build those bridges so that during the second half of next year, we can see something more happening. And I'll tell you what, that gives a lot of other source markets that are more open 
another good innings, right? There's a lot of runway for other markets to keep, to, to keep um, providing markets because we can talk demand and occupancy in flights. The spend is a big factor, right? You ask in some factors like how much does the Chinese really spend in FMB and activities and that kind of stuff compared to, and not to paint too much with a broad brush, but that matters. Absolutely. Uh, uh, very well said. It, 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 tell us a little bit about some of the the case studies, Jesper. You you obviously look at it from a global perspective, but uh, from Asia-Pacific point of view, some of the case studies about diversification. Now, a lot of these nations, they do have a better domestic markets, but you know, all of us, when China was sending out uh, hundreds of thousands of people, we were all addicted. We wanted more. Bring it more. Bring it yeah. on. Uh, I, I, help us understand some of the best practices that have been successful uh, through diversification. Yeah, it's it's uh, absolutely that sugar has been. Uh, it's so easy to get to that fountain. Are we, uh, I mean, Bali the Australians, whatever it may be, right? Uh, it's it's a common thread around the world. I think uh, this sounds like things that are, are almost too high level that are hard to impact, but we know that it can be impacted. Like, and Hiram knows what I'm talking about with his work in PADA as well, how mm. just the collaboration and the meeting of those conversations, how important that is. I've seen countless examples in those events where um, countries who have progressive thinking that stay out of that conservative old school mentality, uh, learning about tourism and, and what makes it work uh, on a broad front, not just pinpointing, but and they have to have long term plans. I mean, I always like to praise Singapore for the ability of having their five, 10, 15 year old plans, right? They, they always one step ahead and like in this pandemic, yeah, they slow some things down, pull some levers, but there's a plan. So I think Many countries maybe think too short term, and unfortunately, that is politically driven. You only have to look at Canberra to see yeah, it's not easy, uh, even during or after or before a pandemic. But where you have political stability for a while, I mean, India's had a, a government for a long time. Um, Indonesia has had a government for two five-year sessions, right? I think that plays a big part in those tourism decisions that they need to make, because this is not going to happen just by industry and by us saying it needs to happen. It needs government, it needs associations, it needs proper bilateral and multilateral communications. It's not done overnight, I'm afraid. There's no magic formula, I think. I, I'm just so impressed uh, with, I mean, again, I, we're praising Sri Lanka like crazy here, but for a reason. It is, uh, I love Sri Lanka, I've been there many times, and it, they've done so much right. Sri Lanka now, compared to 10 years ago, is night and day, right, uh, in terms of progression it's the same amazing place and I, and, and I love I love the progressive nature that Sri Lanka is taking to this well that's fantastic well Hiran thanks for all your leadership relative to mm -hmm. travel and tourism particularly in Sri Lanka I would echo what Jesper has said having seen the market over a period of time it is incredible the progress that has been made and, and still more to see Hiran uh, uh, you talked a little bit about loss of talent uh, to other markets or other industries. It, 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 this phenomena is very common. Now, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, you were able to retain all of your teams and you didn't really uh, uh, 
furlough anybody. So if if I'm correct in that, hats off to you to getting through some of the toughest times, but still looking after your team. So uh, that's hugely, hugely, hugely admirable. And thank you for doing that. But talk a little bit about what can the industry do to attract talent? There is a massive, massive exodus from the industry, globally speaking. So what can we do? What can we do to attract talent and retain them? Well, one of the things we do, Abidi, is that we have a program called Jetwing Youth Development Program. Uh, We go into the rural areas of the country uh, where the youth do not have proper educational facilities. And we, we just look at, you know, can this child... Uh, who's over the age of 18, uh, does he or she smile? That's all we require. We, we, we teach them English. Uh, we teach them hospitality skills. And we train them. You know, we have become a, a great training ground now. Uh, three to five years uh, working with us. And then suddenly we see them going into the Middle East or Maldives Islands. But that's not a permanent shift as well. Because they work a couple of years there learn more trends, and then they come back. So this cycle continues. So even though we have lost in the short term, we are not that concerned because, as uh, you know, I know our HR uh, team is on the prowl once again, bringing back youth in different parts of the country for training programs. We train them. We give them, uh, you know, practical training, and then they start working with us. And while they are, you know, maturing, some of the others who have gone uh, overseas will come back because Maldives Islands, for example, while it's a fantastic place to go on holiday, it's not such a great place for people who are working there day in, day out. Forgive me for saying that. But, you know, a couple of years there, they earn, of course, much more money than uh, what they would earn here. And then they come back. Similarly, in the Middle East, you know, they work, earn money, come back. And don't forget the number one foreign exchange earner for Sri Lanka at the moment is remittances, you know. So therefore, it's an important segment for the destination, for the country as a whole. Uh, so we train, we develop, we send them out, they, they improve further, come back. So this is, the cycle will continue. And uh, we, you know, we keep, uh, you know, the Fair enough. ball rolls, roll, keeps rolling. Abid, if I if I may just to follow on that, because I and to ask you here, because I one of the things that I remember from Sri Lanka was were these plans about hospitality schools up north and those plans, which you need that as well. I Many countries have. But one of the things that stood out, and you're right, I mean you're fortunate, like Thailand, it comes natural to most Sri Lankan cases to have a service attitude. That's fortunate. <laughs> yes, but very, women, very fortunate. Yeah, but women in hospitality, because this was a, a challenge historically is my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, many told me that it wasn't necessarily a given that women would go into hospitality uh, in service industry in general. And this is something I remember, you know, uh, the, the, the tourism minister, obviously, uh, and everyone was trying to impact. Are you seeing any change in that? Because that's such an important part, because there's many women as if had, that could do a great job there. Yeah, well, th- this, this is still a, still a cultural issue here. I mean, uh, quite a number of them like to get into the hospitality sector, but either the parental pressure, uh, religious mm. pressure, 
or some sort of or the boyfriend pressure pressure maybe whatever right. maybe uh, keeps them away uh, be that as it may we have been fairly successful as a company to get get uh, you know females into uh, working with us we are at least 5 to 10% more than the industry average when it comes to the number of females working with us that is because we work with the clergy whether it is a buddhism or christianity or islam uh, or hinduism we work with them uh, so therefore we are able to attract uh, more through them and uh, so so but you are right yes but it, it, we are it, it should be much higher we should be 30 40% of our yeah. workforce should be female we are still 15 20% okay well the the unfortunate thing uh, that pandemic has dealt a bigger blow to women exactly. in the in the workforce than anything else so uh, unfortunately Iran you might have had to take a, a step backwards to go forward but it is a fantastic industry and and uh, i'm sure people will be attracted to that and look we we have uh, approached the end of our time sam are there any other questions if not i've got uh, just a couple more for our our guests now go ahead david uh just uh, yesper from your point of view um one takeaway for our viewers uh, from this conversation and one learning from the pandemic i think yeah, well, the, if i start with the, the last one because we you guys talked about staffing today and that the importance of this industry to promote itself well because here we go this is one of the biggest staffing um, the, the great resignation that you talked about how 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 do we get people back in the industry and all that with the tranka in in that level but everywhere to make it attractive and it's not just about wages right it's about the whole thing and so i think for me that that's that's the biggest challenge and opportunity that we have to remain uh, relevant in there from our conversations today i mean i just always the optimism and i and also we, from anurag was saying like luxury is reshaping and reforming and india is such a great starting place for that and sri lanka because uh, masters of luxury making it something new without losing the values and i liked a lot of stuff he said about that um it's still we can create efficiencies uh we can deploy technology and everything and maybe the the staff per room ratio does go down which helps out a bit with with, with the budget but at the end of the day there's enough people and enough values in there to 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 have that so i'm really excited about how luxury reshapes um uh, moving forward Uh, starting in the Indian Ocean area which is really cool. Well we'll we'll, uh, we'll definitely have to have you back Jasper to uh tell us the trends uh, looking at profit and loss statements because in many ways these high ADRs that have been created yeah. and in low operating costs uh, because of staffing changes or whatever might have been done globally the margins have grown uh and and I'm sure organizations are going to gravitate to keeping those margins as we recover it'll be interesting to see as to what services and facilities are actually brought back either because of guest preference or because of uh, the cost in maldonet here on same question for you if you don't mind uh, uh one learning from the pandemic uh, what can we do to be better resilient as an industry 
uh, moving forward in one takeaway from this conversation? I think what we in the hospitality sector or leisure sector have taken for granted is, you know, health and safety. We've kind, kind of neglected. So this is an area that we need to really focus on and share that experiences because today health and safety comes very much right up uh, uh, in, in every aspect. So, it, so the, the, in, you know, when it comes to catering food and everything else, uh, there is a way for us to communicate that message, spread that message across how food can heal you and not food can, you know, harm you, that kind of uh, message and in you know, mind, body, uh, you know, wellness, all of that, because uh, if you're not healthy, uh, this tourism uh, will not last for long. So I think that's something that we've learned the hard way, uh, uh, you know, and that, that, that's, that's one thing. And of course, based on what Jesper said, uh, you know, the people are willing to pay. I think that's something that I will take. Tomorrow is a, a meeting uh, with the Hotels Association members. I'll be sharing what Jesper uh, said. Yes, people are willing to pay. You don't need to really discount and give uh, bargain basement pricing and, you know, subsidizing uh, uh, travel because uh, people are willing to pay. And I thank you for that, Jesper. And thanks, Avid and Sam. Eric, for having me on the show. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Hospitality Talks podcast. If you found value in this show, we appreciate a rating. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that will help us too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.